trigger warning, this podcast contains discussions about suicide, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. It's a mini milestone episode for the Just Checking In pod, as I'll be checking in with a returning guest for the third time. Outside of myself, no other guest has come on more than twice, so I'm very excited for this one. Claudia Van Nimwegen appeared on Just Checking In Pod episode 47 and 146, respectively. In part two, we talked about Claudia's shift from they, them to she, her, and assistance from her previous non-binary identity. We also talked about her being diagnosed with a rare condition called fibromyalgia and how she's rediscovered her faith and found a supportive church community she is still a part of today. In part three, we discuss an eating disorder, which Claudia had previously been bottling up and suppressing for a long period of her life. In December 2022, the ED, the fibromyalgia and general stress exploded and she collapsed at work. The left side of her body became temporarily immobile and she was placed in Whipscross Hospital where she stayed for three weeks. During that time, she had to learn how to deal with her eating disorder, change her eating habits and tackle the voices in her head that were telling her to take her own life. These voices came in the form of an imaginary friend, which Claudia said has been with her since childhood. Eventually, after lots of checks, delays and frustration, Claudia got some clarity on why she collapsed and she was diagnosed with something else called Functional Neurological Disorder, or FND. She says this has explained so many things in her life and plays a part in every other diagnosis she has had. Despite that traumatic moment and all of these diagnoses, she has never let this define her. She was discharged after a month in hospital, is in recovery and back at work doing what she loves in teaching and drama. I personally supported Claudia during this difficult period of her life, as did friend of the pod and her close friend Tobias Frey, who organised a fund for her to help her during her stay in hospital where she couldn't work and support herself financially as she could previously. I hope this episode demonstrates the power that supporting someone with their mental health can have. It's not just about checking in, although that's very important. It's about being there, being selfless and stepping up for your friends with action, not just words. So this is how part three of my check-in with Claudia Van Nimwegen went. Claudia, welcome back again to the Just Checking In pod. You are the first ever guest outside of me to have a third appearance. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing in, this, in what we're going to discuss on this episode. How are you, pal? Third time lucky. <laughs> I... <laughs> I had to start with that one. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. Okay, what, six out of ten, seven out of ten? Probably about... You've had a busy week. Seven, You've had a busy about... week for the, for the listeners who don't know. You've had a job interview, I a very have... big job interview yesterday at time of recording. So I guess you want a bit of an endorphin hangover from that. Yeah. But 
hopefully this is a little bit less stressful <laughs> than that it interview is, was. Truly, I've been looking forward to this for a few weeks Amazing. now, a few months, I think. We were saying before we started this, it doesn't feel like five minutes since you were sitting back on that sofa, does it? Feels like yesterday. Yeah, it really does. It really does. In the 80 or so episodes that I've done since we last chatted, mate, you've gone through a whole new heap of mental health experiences, good and bad, <laughs> which is why we are chatting today. So without further ado, are you ready to just get into it and start the show? Ready as I'll ever be. This pod's going to be nice and simple, mate. So we're going to just talk about your continued mental health journey again. So firstly, as a check-in, who's the Claudia we meet now? How do you reflect on part two? And I guess a little bit of part one, actually. And just take me through the journey to where you are now. Good question. I thought about this a little bit, but I didn't want to dwell on it too much because I think dwelling on the past can be sometimes... Mm, You don't want to swim too much. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to dwell on who I was, but Mm -hmm. I do want to use my past experiences to almost big up who I am now Mm -hmm. because I have been through a lot. And it's recognising what I've been through as almost as like a push towards who I'm becoming. The Claudia in part one was a little bit of a mess, I think. <laughs> Still, just a little bit. We're all messes we a little bit, u- mate. We yeah. can use a little bit. Degrees of mess. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And then the Claudia, you know, part two, which was, like you said, 80-odd episodes ago, was kind of certain things were hanging in the balance with my kind of professional career, but my personal life was, you know, it, it was just getting back on track, I mm. think. But again, it was almost like swings and roundabouts. So some of the things were... Like, you know, having a few kind of relapses and decisions to kind of go sober and a lot of kind of talk about medication and some of the kind of conditions. Or not medication. Or yeah. not medication. Yeah. And some of the conditions which I was going through, both mental and physical, it's taken me, I think, again, it takes everyone, you know, different periods in their mm-hmm. time, different time spans. I think for me, it's taken me a whole year to actually realise what I've been through and that I have come out of it a lot, lot stronger you look healthier, you sound better, you sound different. So, I mean, the listeners can't always tell that, but do you feel that? I do. I think it's taken a lot of willpower to get through. Well, when you have so many different labels and diagnoses and so many different words jumbled around, mm. it feels like you're just any other letter in the alphabet, honestly. Mm. And you can become defined by that. You can. Yeah. And I've kind of made it my mission to not be defined by it, but use them as almost a platform to support other people. Mm-hmm. I'm a giver. I love to give. I mm. love to, you know, help I can other tell. people. I've known you for a long time now. Yeah. <laughs> that's my kind of unconditional nature in the back of my head. I love, you know, supporting other people in whatever way that might be through my job, through just kind of personal experiences. Mm. Is that because you felt maybe in the past that you didn't have that level of support? You didn't want anyone else to go through what you went through? Absolutely. I think, yeah, yeah, no kid deserves to go through what I went through. No kid deserves to go through anything, but some of the trauma and the responses I was having, I recognise now was totally, totally unhealthy. But at the time, they were the only thing you could cling on to because they were your safety net. They were your things which kept you going even mm. if they were considered as unhealthy now i think it was we, a survival tool for you at that time yeah, yeah. i think i used the thing about survival thrive last time and i think now i'm kind of getting out of the survive and moving into the thrive you were sort of in the balance maybe at that point weren't you yeah, yeah. i do kind of see it as almost like that balance scale mm. of any one thing can tip you either way well let's hope this one is the thrive platform eh hopefully yeah. hopefully yeah. <laughs> the biggest i guess shock and moment since we last chatted mate was when you collapsed at work 
You were taken to my ends, my local hospital, Whips Cross. Take me back to that day because obviously I don't see you every day. I don't see you every week. I don't see you every month. So I think it shocked me because maybe I thought that when we last chatted and when we were chatting, we we chat weekly, don't we? We always have a chat. And maybe I thought you were in a better place than I thought you were at that point. So just take me back to that day if you can. What were your memories of it? What triggered it? And how did it impact your physical health? Definitely, because I said it in the intro, and your mental health. Whew. Take your time. I remember it was the England football match. I think it <laughs> That's was your first Eng- I think it was England. Was it October, November? Yes. It was November. It was, it, was uh, it was the World Cup in guitar. It was, yeah. it mm. was. And I was just in the office, just cover taught a lesson, supporting a load of students in the morning. Absolutely fantastic. Again, was coming out by a normal, normal day. regular business. Yeah. yeah, it just seemed like a normal day. I was struggling a lot. I think, obviously, I was getting used to a new role still, and our department was having a bit of a shift up. I'd just been to Edinburgh a few weeks before that. Just on a you had a great time in Edinburgh. It yeah. was amazing. Just, you know, taking a backpack, solo trip, just a few days to myself mm-hmm. on the cheap, as we all know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I had lunch, and I literally just collapsed. I think what was scary was the fact I said to some of my colleagues, oh, I don't feel too well. And in the back of my head, I was just thinking, again, I think we downplay our own mm. kind of... As English people, we always do, yeah. We downplay things. And I said, oh, I've really got a headache. I feel like I'm going to faint. And me being me, I've never had that happen before, ever. I think the only time was back when I was eight and I, I don't know, fell down some stairs or something and I fainted. Mm-hmm. Um it wasn't something think, you associated yourself with, like no. having, so you weren't used to that experience. No. And I went to go sit down in the room next door, you know, get out of the office thinking, oh, okay, just take a break, take five minutes. Next thing I know, I was pulsating, like, I was, I had the shake so bad, they thought it was like a epileptic kind of... Like a fit. Fit, yeah, yeah in yeah. a way. And in my head, I was thinking, oh no, am I going to die? That was what was going through my brain mm. because my... It's a natural sats, response as well when yeah, you have something happen to you I mean, you like my that. sats dropped so low, they dropped to about 52. My oxygen dropped to about 53, I believe, which... For listeners that my, we don't know, that's low. That's very low. The paramedic who got there two hours later, which we don't talk about. Love NHS a bit, but unfortunately, you know, it was two hours later. Yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, it is yeah. what it is. They said I was a cat to emergency. This was the first responder who said this. I was in and out of consciousness. I couldn't see out of one of my eyes. One of my eyes was like closed and half my body was paralyzed. I, I mean, could that only is, move that part is very stroke-like symptoms. Yeah, yeah, they thought it was a stroke. So they literally took me to the hospital where... Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was... I think for me, I knew what was happening and it was one of those things which was again going back to eight, nine years ago, which I've spoken about in previous podcasts, a slow decline. And I knew that in myself. I knew that I was... You were semi-conscious of that, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think for me, it was a big thing around eating. I think Mm. that's what kind of got me to that point. You know, I was only really eating lunch at work, which again is, you know, 500, 700 calories a day. That was your only meal? That was probably my only meal, yeah. I would, you know, sometimes eat on a Sunday... 
you know, with people for lunches, but I wouldn't have any breakfast or dinner. Were you conscious you were restricting? Were you conscious that this could be an eating disorder? I was conscious about it because I have got bulimic tendencies. And that's been one of the things which doctors haven't really picked up on. However, other professionals... You can hide it, mate, unfortunately, yeah. I can hide it because I am not underweight for my kind of... Yes, stereotypically, you don't look emaciated or how a I'm using air quotes here a stereotypical person with an eating disorder would have exactly got it in one so I think in one way that was a coping mechanism but also I didn't feel like I deserved to eat why because I was helping other people so much I thought oh they need more of a they need more attention than I do and I would get in so that bullying the people pleasing stuff I think it's yeah it, Mm. it, it goes back to people pleasing and I think for me, I've always, like, I've enjoyed food, I've enjoyed cooking, but having a relationship with food like I do, you know, again, you're in London, you've got chicken shops left, right and (laughs) centre, especially in East. Especially in East. And I was filling my body with so much junk, Mm. but I didn't actually realise, oh, but one junk meal a day, if that's all I have, that's not right. And Mm. then, you know, I was having lunch... You know, at work we get free lunches, which again has been an amazing kind of godsend to me with not having to think about, you know, again, cost of living crisis mm-hmm. and just preparing a lunch, preparing yourself a sandwich, taking it in. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I do, but, you know, depends. I think for me at that point, it took something drastic to happen. Mm. And that's what, it, that's me, what it did. For me to actually realise what I was going through and how I was nearly dead. I think seven or eight doctors said to me, you know, in whips within about two, three days, they said they've got doctors looking at my case in Royal London Hospital and the Royal Free. They've mm. got, you know, doctors working everywhere trying to work out what this thing is because all my bloods came back as normal. All my tests came back as normal. And I was just thinking, wow, this is just a normal day for me in the office. <laughs> and this has happened with me being, you know. It was a normal day for them. Yeah, they were really stumped. Yeah. Yeah. And... I think it was a shock to everyone, but I, in the back of my head, I almost knew that something was going to happen, like it was inevitable. It was coming. It was coming, yeah. but I didn't think it would, you know. In that I, way. I didn't think it would go in that way. But in previous pods, I kind of have, have talked about how I wanted to kind of disappear slowly without no one really noticing. I think for me, that was a relive of that. But it actually happened in... So you saying that was alluding to food? Alluding yeah. to food and, and I didn't also... I didn't pick up on that. I thought maybe you were talking about self harm or you were talking about the way that you processed or talked about suicidality. I didn't know that you were talking about food. So even I didn't pick up on it and I'm normally pretty good with this stuff. So, so yeah. I think it was a combination for me. Mm. I think again when you try different coping mechanisms and you find one which works, you stick to it. But my overactive brain gets so bored as we know which is why I do so many different things probably why I'm back on the third one to be honest with you because I've got so much (laughs) drama going on I think for me it was a part of kind of suicidal ideations as well alongside that because if I'm told you know I might not walk again half my body's paralyzed what more is there for me to live for and you're not now and I'm not I'm not say yeah I'm not I think it took a lot of again mates coming around just being like look you need to eat, you need the fuel to support yourself before you can actually support other people in the ways you want to support people. And it took other people 
drilling it into me almost yes, me a lot of that <laughs> basically and i am so grateful that that happened you know because it's given me a new lease on things that i don't always have to be the person to support other people no mate and that other people really have my back in situations how did that feel to realize it was one of those things which again i don't get emotional <laughs> but this is quite rare um it was one of those things which really makes me realise the power in other people coming and having your back in situations. I've always had other people's back in situations, but I've never been as vocal about when I am properly struggling. I've always kind of dismissed it because other people are, you know, more important in that way. You, or... put, you put them before yourself. Exactly, mm. exactly. And I've been able to process that through... You know, just being open and completely honest about it and being vulnerable. I support vulnerable people all the time in not only my work, but in some of my voluntary stuff I do. Again, the emotions in that way don't affect me, but I've actually now been able to tap into my emotions more and be able to realise that it is okay not to be okay. It's not okay to stay in that particular place. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to ask for help. Yep. And expect help as well. Yes, yep. Totally. I think the expectation is a big thing for me where it could take years, it could take months, it could take weeks, it could take a day, it could take a 10 minute phone call, it could take a me shouting down the Instagram being like, help, what am I doing? And then you and everyone else responding, being like, look, we've got your back. For me to realise, you know, everyone goes through something and life is one big clusterfuck. Journey, yeah, and clusterfuck, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Clusterfuck is the more on PC term, yeah. I think... It's one of those things which, yeah, I didn't realise how much support I actually needed. And that wasn't just a therapist or someone turning around and being like, look, I'm going to sit with you for an hour a week and do this. It's more of the practical things, you know, like making sure I've got food in the fridge, making sure, again, my colleagues would be like, oh, are you eating today? Cool. We order food on a Friday now. And they make me order because in some ways it's tough love. Mm-hmm. And I think I needed a bit of that. Mm-hmm. I needed a bit of tough love. You needed some love, and then you also needed some tough love as well. Yeah. But I, I gave need... you both in heavy doses. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I kind of couldn't move out the hospital bed, so I did just have to sit there <laughs> and take it. But in, in in some ways, you know, being half paralysed, and my body literally was. Again, it's it's hard to describe in words unless you've actually seen it, but I wasn't, you know, able to, you know talk out of one side I, I couldn't hold a phone I had to get used to using my left hand using my left side of my body a lot more than my right that was it's almost like you've lost 50% of you but for me it felt like I lost a lot more it felt mm. like I lost 90-95% of me because my thoughts were coming back you know I was forgetting certain things which was that scary it was horrific it was horrifying it was terrifying I and again, I didn't notice how terrifying it was because I, I associated terror with trauma from, you know, previous kind of things which I've been through. I didn't realise actually how much of a big deal this was. When you're faced with a, almost a life or death situation, which the doctors told me, you know, if you continue the way you are at, you've maybe got a month, two months at most because of all my other conditions as a result of that. That really got me thinking, wow, I've actually now got to take over the reins. Yes, I've been going. Yes, I've been going through all this stuff for, you know, I'm twenty six now. 
feels weird saying 26. Why? Not 25. Well, because I think, not only because it was my birthday a few days ago, but also because... It's a big year, uh, actually, 25, isn't it? Yeah. When you go past 25, a lot of things feel the same yeah. and a lot of things feel different and things go much more quickly. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. I think I think for me, it feels like, I think I mentioned on the previous pod, I feel like I'm only about eight years old because of, you know, the suicide. Sort of arrested development and, the, and stuff and like the, that. Mm. Yeah, because of what I've been through, I was actually starting to live from that moment. Mm. Whereas now... I almost feel like a baby again. But I've had to learn how to walk, how to have a good relationship with food, how to get myself to a place where, again, I can ask for support, but I'm also being able to almost take support on for myself. Mm. Sort of personal responsibility and ownership sort of thing. Yeah, Yeah. I think everyone has got a collective responsibility to look out for each other, but we need to take care of ourselves before we can actively and effectively support other people. Mm. When you were in that hospital, mate, when I came to see you, obviously you were in a very different place to where you are now. And there were things that, and I'm not going to go into too many details about this for very different reasons, but there were things that happened that I needed to give you some tough love about. And you basically needed to articulate things more because otherwise they wouldn't change. So how did you get the... Courage, first of all, to do that, articulate that. And how do you look back on it now? Do you feel like you are more sure of yourself now and and what you know and what you can say and what your values are in a way that you perhaps didn't even before that collapse? Good question. I think I've always been extremely verbal, as we already know. (laughs) (laughs) I've always been verbal. I've always been a good communicator when it comes to a subject, again, especially subjects. Not yourself. (laughs) Not myself. Realising that my voice does have an impact, I think has been a big thing. And that can be difficult when you're an advocate for other people, but actually having to self-advocate and standing up for what you know is right. Mm -hmm. And you know if something continues... That you don't like. Yeah. Yeah, that you don't like. It's not just about saying no, it's about reporting that. Yes. You know, no does mean no, mm-hmm. but no also needs to be taken to a point where other people can't do things which jeopardise mm-hmm. your no. Your privacy, your your comfort. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, n- n- not only what happened in, in hospital, but before that as well, I think I, again, being a people pleaser, you mm. just want to stay in the background and almost, again, disappear. When things happen, it makes you feel so small that your voice feels small as well. And your voice isn't small, mate. Your voice is very big. And I tell you that often. Yeah. I think trauma is a weird thing, isn't it? Trauma is definitely a weird thing. And it can come up in so many different ways. It can be repeats. It can be past experiences, flashbacks, which is, again, something which I deal with now. I often get flashbacks at night, which mm-hmm. makes me having trouble sleep. About you know, have all, you tried all, getting all up and going things. to the other side of the bed? Yeah, yeah, I've it's, tried. I've tried doing tried. yeah, tried doing that. Sometimes yeah. it helps. It doesn't always help, but sometimes it helps just to reset your brain a little mm. bit. But I've tried lots of different things, and I think saying no is still obviously an incredibly difficult thing for me to do. But 
The more you do it, it's like a muscle. The more you do yeah, it, exactly. the easier it gets. Exactly. And I think being able to express that to someone in a non-judgmental way and almost prep yourself about mm-hmm. what you're going to say and why you're saying it. Mm-hmm. Also, it supports other people to make sure that things don't happen the mm. same way. And they know your boundaries. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And as well as that, mate, when you do that, you'll realise who your real friends are and who the fake people are. Because mm-hmm. when you start saying no and you put your boundaries in place, some people get their noses put out a little bit out of place. And those people will slowly disappear, but in a positive way from your life. They will. <laughs> they will. I think... Or maybe quickly disappear. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I think some people... Again, I'm not being harsh, but some people really need to distance themselves from other people when they know that it could trigger that person. Yes. And that's a difficult thing to realise. Mm. It's just... Again, it's taken me a while, and it will still take me a while. You know, it's only been about six, seven months since I've been out of that hospital, since I've dealt with, you know, a lot of different traumas not only being in there but you know previous to that i think again it's a journey Mm. it swings and roundabouts and it's recognizing that a yes can sometimes be a yes but it can also have a no attached to it Mm -hmm. it's about setting clear boundaries with not only yourself and what you share but being able to share that in a way which will impact other people before we go into a lot more about the eating disorder mate we've discussed a little bit already in part two we discussed something you had called fibromyalgia, which you were just about getting to grips with. But through the collapse, through the hospital, you've now been diagnosed with another thing, which you said explained quite a lot of the other things and diagnoses that have also impacted your life. It's something I'd never heard of. I didn't. I hadn't heard of fibromyalgia either. But it's called functional neurological disorder or FND. Just explain what it is to the listeners, how it affected you when you found out you were diagnosed. And how you have learned how it's affected other parts of your life. So I thought it was just fibromyalgia, which again is one of those things, a cluster full of diagnoses and different symptoms, should I say, not diagnoses, but almost diagnoses, because it is a combination of the physical symptoms and the mental symptoms Mm -hmm. of a chronic condition. Or chronic pain condition. A chronic pain condition, Yeah. yeah. FND, functional neurological disorder, how I understand it is it's a pain block. So your body essentially, again, you know, your body deals with things in stress responses. It has, you know, if you touch a hob, oh, it's hot. If you, you know, stick your hand in the freezer, oh, it's cold. My body doesn't have those same pain receptors, which meant that when I was in pain, I didn't realize I was in pain. That's very again, dangerous. Since, yeah. Again, since the collapse and since, you know, being hungry, you know, when you get to a point where you're not hungry anymore. Again, I don't know whether or not that might be an eating disorder thing or whether or not that might be FND. Or maybe interacting with it. So you had the eating disorder, maybe the FND stopped you from feeling the natural hungers or pains that would be associated with not eating, which I'd is ne- a very dangerous combination. Yeah. I'd yeah. never thought of that. I'd never thought of that before. I almost call it a chronic pain cocktail now, mm. which can be taken one of two yeah, ways. Don't put that as an acronym. CPC, no. yeah. <laughs> I've got a CPC, yeah. <laughs> That's the short answer. <laughs> so the fibro obviously affected me in my pain response and how I felt pain and being able to describe it and almost having these fibro flare-ups, which, you know, affected the way I almost interact with myself, if that mm. makes sense. So how I process things. The FND is almost like, it comes under the chronic pain family, but it's 
similar to MS and ME as well. So for listeners, that's multiple sclerosis and ME is, um, what does ME stand for? I can't remember now. But anyway, yeah, they are more the mainstream conditions. Yeah. Yeah. So I think when I got through the diagnosis, I wasn't expecting it. Again, they tried seeing if it was a stroke and then they said, okay, it's not a stroke. I was like, right. So is this just a fibro flare up? Because I'd had fibro flare ups in the past. But I didn't think it was anything, you know. Yeah, it wouldn't be that severe, would it? No. no. I had heard stories that it could be severe and doing kind of research about stuff. Originally, they weren't going to diagnose me with it. They thought it was my mental state. They thought it was, you know, I had psychotherapists and people like that. They couldn't work out what it was. So they sent round this one guy. His name was Alex. I remember it so vividly into the hospital. And he said, I am a psychotherapist for unexplained conditions <laughs> which again i'm like I'm not sure about how much of a badge of honor that is <laughs> no but but i turned around to him and i was like look it's just another part of my fibro flare-up and he was like no these symptoms are real what you are experiencing is real that was almost a turning point for me where i was like okay i know that it's real and it's not just my brain putting these you know but it's not just my brain blocking these receptors. What FND is to me, and again, because it's such a spectrum, some people, you know, are in wheelchairs, some people use crutches, some people use walking sticks. And you're not in any of that. No, I used the stick for a while, and they did say, possibly in the future, I might have to use a wheelchair. But that's a possibly, mate, do you know what I mean? It's a possibly. It's It's not a definitely. No, it's not a definitely. And they said it could happen as young as 30. Which for me was, again, a real shock, which I think now I'm kind of taking ownership of that and being able to be like, well, what label do I put myself now? And again, people live perfectly normal lives and healthy lives within wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. And with mm-hmm. all and that's important kind to say. Of, yeah, I think it's important to acknowledge that everyone deals with things differently. And mm. if one day I can't deal with something, that's not a reflection of me not trying hard enough to reverse it. No. That's just a reflection of a condition. And sometimes how painful the condition can be but that also doesn't mean you can't put every step in place to make sure you don't end up like that and you stay healthy and you exercise a lot and you you know you do all those things that would make you in the best position so you can say even if that does happen well at least it's not because of how my i've neglected my body so to speak yeah Yeah. i think yeah self-care and self-love is definitely one of my main priorities now and that doesn't need to be hot baths and uh, yoga is going to the gym or going for a run or exactly. walking or you know exercise yeah e- exactly yeah. self-care is hard you know it is <laughs> your it body sometimes says i don't want to go out i don't yeah. want to go to the gym and you're like no i've got to do it <laughs> well i've i've finally enough just joined the gym now and i've got an appointment coming up very very shortly to discuss you know what's going to work for me and what's not going to work for me i think again i can help other people to a point before i need to help myself first and sometimes, you know, it's almost like a punishment in a way. Because I'm like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done that. For me, the big part is about showing up and being present in whatever way, shape or form that might be. With a functional neurological disorder, my brain sometimes completely shuts off. And I lose memory, both short term and long term. Which, again, is a blessing and a curse in some ways with some of the trauma. But things can come back around very, very quickly. FND also is, it's actually quite common. It's quite common amongst women in their 30s and 40s. I do need to do a bit more research about it for myself. 
but that's one of the things which I want to do in my own time and realise what the diagnosis means to me isn't necessarily what it means to other people. Again, spectrum. The biggest thing about FND is that it's not reversible. That's the thing in my head which I've been battling with. It's non-reversible, which means I'll always have it, and it's non-preventable, so it's a progressive condition, which means it will get... It'll be on a decline, but I can slow down that decline. Mm-hmm. And I can live life to the best of my ability, doing the things which, you know, I need to do for my own self-care and to make sure that I'm not burdening other people with that self-care. You're not burdening people, but yeah. Let's talk about, before we go into the positives, and there's a lot of positives to talk about, but... When you were in hospital, mate, there's a lot of things you didn't tell me before you ended up in hospital. But one thing you did disclose was you told me about this imaginary friend that you had in your childhood. And it doesn't sound like a very nice imaginary friend because the imaginary friend was telling you to do a lot of very bad things to yourself. And at various times during your hospital stay, including when you saw me, mm-hmm. you would see it. Yep. You would hear it. It would tell you to harm yourself and it would tell you to a lot of other things, including try and take your own life. So when did this friend first appear? When did he or she tend to appear? And how have you dealt with this? It first appeared, so I honestly thought it was so, so real. And reflecting on it, it was an imaginary friend, which I created because I, again, felt different. I felt out of the box. I felt like no one loved me for me and no one was able to make friends with me. Hence why, you know, I think every kid has an imaginary friend or some kind of imaginary, you know, fancy world they can escape into, whether or not that be through, you know, play or through teddies or, you know, games, Mm -hmm. books, whatever that might be. It was your escape. It was. And it was where I felt comfortable. And it did appear in different ways. So I think... For me, growing up, it appeared when people were bullying me, mm. almost like standing over them as like this big grey kind of cloud. Yeah. Mm. And it was like, oh, I'm protecting you. You've got to protect me by keeping all the stuff a secret, keeping all the things like the self-harm a secret, keeping all the things like... It was a toxic friend. The, it was toxic. And I think I didn't notice the toxicness until... I almost got called out for it and it was like, oh, no, this is something you've actually made up almost as a form of self-harm, almost like a form of self-loathing. It's like, oh, okay, I can push this onto this other thing and blame it on that for telling me all this stuff. And it's like, well, actually, that was me telling myself to do the things. It wasn't this imaginary figure which again, at the time, was real. You anthropomorphised it. You actually thought it was someone to blame and to pass it on to. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes when you can, like... It was like, I remember I was in hospital and you make, like, a memory box Mm -hmm. and, you know, you put everything into it. That box went up in flames. I think I talked about that on one of the pods. Um, Maybe. You know, when you place everything into a box and then it just disappears, it's like, oh, okay, great. But the box is still there. You've still got those memories. For me, I connected the past trauma and the past memories to the imaginary side and the phrase you know it's all in your head it's all in your head that didn't mean anything to me whereas now I actually realized no it's all in my body not just my head Mm. 
And the pain I was experiencing at the time with the voice, I think, almost manifested itself into a physical way through these new conditions. Because some of the things I was having in the new conditions were like almost hallucinations. Did it feel like psychosis with that imaginary friend? Yeah, it did. It did. And again, I've never experienced psychosis, so I don't know. Well, you clearly have, because that's what it is. (laughs) (laughs) What it kind of felt like however with all these other diagnoses again it's it's such a confusing mix of is this the eating disorder brain or like mm. the hat talking is this the me as a kid trying to protect myself now is it the fnd talking is it fibro talking is it my work voice talking is it my teacher head talking is it my advocate voice talking is it my volunteer voice talking or is it a lot just of different me? hats here mm. or is it just claudia and i think Since coming to terms with that, I've been able to... I haven't heard this voice as much. It still comes and goes, but it doesn't tell me to do things anymore to myself. And I think that, for me, has been the biggest revelation because Mm. I've realised I need to do positive things to help myself instead of these negatives. Do you think it will go permanently at some point and you can let it go? I'm hopeful, but I'm also doubtful. Why are you think, doubtful? I think it's... As I understand more about conditions and the progressiveness, a lot of the symptoms are like, I could start to hallucinate more. I could have more flashbacks. I could have more moments where I lose my memory and almost become someone who I'm not for mm. that particular time. However, I know that that voice was something which made me feel safe. So I'm like... Made you feel safe, but wasn't in reality making you safe. Yeah. And I think for me, it was distancing myself from the feelings at that particular time and focusing on feelings I have now. And also looking to the future and being like, look, my past isn't a representation of my future, but it can still... Again, no one deals with trauma in the same ways. You can forgive but you can't forget. I think that's the part of me which is slightly still hesitant. Okay. We but can remain positive though. Yeah. I feel like it can get to a point where it's so, so tiny. It will just be like a drop of food colouring in, you know. It'll be an overnight travel pool. bag, as I say, of trauma rather than a recondite suitcase of trauma. I think mm. it'll be a plastic toothbrush at this point. <laughs> yeah, with, yeah, let's hope You know, God. something very, very small. Something very, very small. Mm. That's fueled me to... Again, I use the word fuel now in a healthy way, which I didn't see before. That voice is no longer a part of me, which I identify with and I see as controlling me. Mm-hmm. I have a lot more control now over what I think, what I feel, what I say, what I do, and what I realise is my future. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it gave me that thing of like, oh, you've got no future. You've got no future. You're going to be, again, you're going to be in this wheelchair. You're going to be... You know, I want you to eat this number of calories. I want you to do all these things because this makes me happy. Because this this part of my life, I can control. As soon as I let go of that kind of control and just was like, look, I can only control what I can control. That voice, those feelings, those emotions I associated with it have now got no control over me. So I am... A lot more hopeful that things will get better with that. But I think my brain always thinks about the worst. I think our brains naturally go towards the worst possible 
you know, feeling without realising how many positives outweigh that. Mm. A bit like, oh, again, with the outweigh and the balance. Having the balance, you know, you could take something off a negative, boost you up to the positive. What struck me the most, I think, about when you were in that really difficult period, Claude, is that you still had this really positive outlook. It almost felt like it was a foundation for you to get better. Even when you relapsed and I would give you some tough love and then I'd also give you some normal love and say, it's okay, relapses happen, but it's how we learn from them. You can relapse again and don't beat yourself up over it, but it's how you get better. How do you look back on that mindset when you were in that such difficult period? When half of your body doesn't work and half of your brain doesn't work at the same time with that, all you've got left to hold on to is what does work. And for me, what worked was speaking out, even if it was a tiny little voice in, you know, a drop in the ocean. I think realising that people have my back and that tough love is needed. From time to time, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that for me was the thing which I needed at that particular moment to get me through. It almost feels like I've got a new lease on life now, but I know I'm not out of the woods yet. It can be very, very quick to go downhill again, you know, very, very quick. But being able to aim high and realise, yeah, it, it swings and roundabouts. It's, you know, high roller coasters, low roller coasters. Life is not linear and growth is not linear either. And being able to almost disassociate who I was to get through a difficult period I'm in now is sometimes needed. And then you can bring back that association in a positive way once you've got through the other side. Because otherwise you're looking at life in such a, such a, such a negative way that your baseline is always going to be negative. So do you feel like it was almost some sort of positive disassociation? from where you were in that period you went to this mindset and positivity in order to cling to a hopeful future even when your body was not in that state you got it in one you got it in one <laughs> mm. i think clinging on to what you know and what you love being able to love things again being able to love doing things you know love going out for a coffee i remember a few of the people bought me in a load of coffee and some pringles <laughs> and i was like ah. Oh, you wow. know me I you know me this. too well already. <laughs> I love this. And it's like I didn't realise how profound of an effect that actually had on me. You know, how and again people say, Oh, it's for little things. When you've got nothing left, it is for little things, you know? You can only get one percent better each day. And that one percent is a little thing. Mm. I'm gonna give him a shout out on this pod because me and him always joke whenever we chat about you that we almost feel like you're big brothers in a way because we have supported <laughs> you for so long. When you were in hospital, obviously you couldn't work. Yeah. You couldn't get paid. Nope. And that obviously presents a lot of difficulties. So what very good friend of the pod, Toby, who is part of your church group, mm -hmm. did was he set you up a little fund that people donated to to help you get back on your feet. I donated, I'm sure Toby donated, and a load of other people donated. When he sent you that, how did you feel? I didn't quite believe it at first. <laughs> I 
I, 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 again, help can come in so many different forms, and I've always been a person to give. I felt, Tea time. People do give a crap about me. That's what I felt. Because the whole cost of living crisis and everything which, you know, is is going on right now, considering my job and how much I earn, I don't earn a lot for what I do. Even though, you know, I work incredibly hard at it, as is so many other jobs, but my job particularly... If I'm not there on the term time only contracts, I don't get paid or I get sick pay, which again, how do you pay your rent? How do you do a food shop? How do you pay How do you your, live? <laughs> how, how do you live? Yeah. And that fund, that little bit gave me that boost, but it also made me feel like, look, help can come in so many different ways. It's not just a mate to talk to sometimes. It's not me giving my all or someone giving their all it's everyone banding together and the power in community and everyone everyone taking a little piece of themselves freely without even thinking about it you know i think money can make or break friendships sometimes and i know for me personally in the past it can break families (laughs) yeah it, it can break so many people and for me it wasn't about the money it was about the gesture I think the gesture and how everyone was just giving something of themselves to almost rebuild me back up again. I always see it as like a puzzle and, you know, all my pieces are just kind of gone. I kind of had the background and the little bits, but those fine details almost boost me up to that level. The puzzle was kind of complete and, you know, with that fund and with those people's you know generous generosity and it almost made me feel like wow I can't waste this opportunity because all these people are believing me to get better and to recover so it's a double-edged sword almost yeah yeah, yeah. which again is almost a form of tough love <laughs> in some way because it's like oh, don't fuck it up <laughs> yes yeah otherwise you'll be taking it back you know <laughs> how did but, it yeah. affect your faith I think... Considering it was all... I mean, I wasn't part of the church group, but I donated, but most of it came from the church group, which I should say. I think it's one of those things which, again, when you're practically dead, what do you hold on to? (laughs) When you have been through, you know, a lot of different life experiences, what do you hold on to? You hold on to what you know, and that's your foundation, whether or not that be faith or a belief or some kind of... Whatever gets you through, gets you through. I think for me, it made me realise that living out your faith isn't just helping other people in, you know, serving them. It's about doing something freely and having that free will to almost make a decision to support someone else by giving up that piece of you. Did you think God was working through them in that moment? Um... I'm not too sure. I think that's one of the things which I'm still kind of working through in my head is you know how god moves in mysterious ways Mm. but it takes someone to almost interject and intercede so possibly possibly i think there's so many things which i still don't understand but 
yeah, the scary moment for me was, again, how am I still alive? And I'm like, oh, it must have been from God. Because, you know, there's... <laughs> <laughs> if eight doctors and medical professionals couldn't explain it why and how I was still alive to me that can only There's really, your answer. to me that can really only point to one answer and I think whatever people believe whatever grounding people have it's about finding that grounding and sticking onto it and then finding people who share that same not only belief but share that same foundation as you and being able to connect with them in that way. Again, it wasn't me purposely doing something to get things. I think in some ways I almost think, oh, Claudia's playing the simp card again. It's like, no, this actually happened. And it's not for attention. It's not for anything like that. Which, again, in the back of my head, I always have that little that little voice saying, oh, what is my intention with stuff? And it's realising that everyone has a good intention. In life, some people have bad intentions, but if your intention is rooted in the right place, we've got nothing to worry about. I think I want to talk about recovery now. So there was a bit of a admin, shall we say, in how you were going to get discharged. So how did you feel when you were discharged, and when you came out, and those initial few weeks and months afterwards? So I was given the opportunity to go into a mental health hospital until I felt more safe. They couldn't do anything else for me, but I felt like I had to go in there just to keep myself safe because I was trialling new medication and, again, I didn't feel safe enough to be able to do that at home by myself in my house share. I also didn't want to burden my housemates with that responsibility or affect them in any way because again I like to keep myself to myself with that and that experience which I had was traumatic and I think no one should have gone through what I went through with it I mean thank god you weren't there for very long but yeah again I had to speak up and advocate myself to get myself out of that place I had to fight to get out of there even though it wasn't as a section they didn't give me any kind of paperwork they didn't know I existed in that place you could have become very lost very quickly. Yeah. And I saw some of the other people in there. And again, I'm not a big comparer of things, but I feel like I didn't need to be in that position and that someone else should have been in there who really needed that kind of support. However, when you think about, you know, mental health hospitals and you think about the support which is offered, it varies from borough to borough. It varies from, you know, county to county. And where I was down in rural Sussex, it's a lot different to hospital in Tottenham. Hmm. Lot, lot different. Not only demographics, but also... That Severity was an adult, of mental health, yeah. Yeah, that was an adult ward, you know. I, <laughs> I, was, I was locked in a room with one of the other patients in there who, you know, was trying to take my money. And there was no ward staff at the time. They were sat in a box. I was on the floor for five hours as soon as I got discharged from whips I was sent there I was on the floor five hours in a cold room before they came around and saw me they refused to help me get up off the floor considering I was still half paralyzed at this point I had to walk to this room where there was a blanket it was minus three degrees outside Jesus and I had a blanket when you go through things like that you realize that 
it's not the fault of the system. It's sometimes people's bad intentions. Or both. It could be both. <laughs> it could be both. And it probably is both. I think there are a lot of injustices which happened. And it did take, again, tough love and other people to say, look, you're the only person who can get yourself out of this situation. So when I left there, you know, they brought me back in an Uber at half two in the morning because I did not want to stay in that hospital. I spent all of 18 hours in there. It was quite ironic, actually, because the day I got discharged from there was the day my work closed for Christmas. Now, I didn't time it. I know what people are thinking. Oh, did you time (laughs) it just so you can get eight weeks off work? No, definitely didn't. I was meant to go home for Christmas, whatever, but my parents ended up coming up. Again, I didn't want them to be involved with him. The whole kind of hospital experience because I had my own life. They were there on the phone. I told them certain things, certain things I didn't and still won't because that's just, again, that's protecting myself. That's also protecting them and I've dealt with that. And again, Mm -hmm. some things don't need to be disclosed. Some things don't need to be disclosed to family, friends, on the pod, anything like that. And I think that's okay to kind of recognise and realise. So I was back at home. We had Christmas. We stayed in a lovely hotel. We, you know, just had a bit of quality family time, which we all needed. I think, you know, my mum, dad, sister... We just need a little bit of time to have a bit of fun, have a little bit of a joke about and spend some quality time together in in short doses with my family, I think. <laughs> Definitely short doses, aka four hours and then Claudia goes home. But anyway, after that, I returned to work, had a return to work meeting in January. I was not phased back into work. I was doing five days a week. But I was working only at one site per day, whereas before I was in between sites, supporting classes and covering lessons and doing all my other role alongside that. I think my colleagues were extremely, extremely important within that process. Making sure that I was eating was my main priority. Making sure that I was able to take a proper break, which... Again, when half your body's not working, you are forced to. <laughs> Tough love on yourself, right? Mm. Whether or not that means going out for a coffee at lunchtime, which would always be a yes. Always be a yes for a coffee, if anyone knows me. Or making sure I'm taking my own medication, mm-hmm. which, again, if people know me, the medication is one of the things which I've struggled with in the past alongside, you know, sobriety and all all these kind of different coping mechanisms. You've gone back to sobriety now as well? No. Ish. No? No. No, No. okay. I forgot to mention that. I am now drinking again, but in a healthy way. So I've managed to find a good balance where I can go for a beer after work. I can, you know, have a few drinks and not feel like it's affecting me because I'm on medication. I think whilst I was trialling new medication... That was one of the things which obviously I stayed away from, as is doctors recommend. I'd always say, do read the labels on the back of things as well, (laughs) about how much medication you're meant to be taking, because I made that mistake as soon as I came out of the hospital. The medication I'm on now is an extremely important part of my recovery, and it's keeping it up. You know, going to be honest, there are days when I forget. There are more days which I forget, but... The medication I'm on now helps me with my sleep. 
that's the main thing. It knocks my body out to a point where I'm able to get a full night's sleep. I now only take it when I need it or when I recognise it. I don't know if that's healthy or not, but I'm going to discuss it with some other doctors and get the correct support, which yeah. I need. And that's something I needed to tell you as well. Yeah. Because you were saying, this medication doesn't work. And I was like, you need to tell them this medication doesn't work. And you're yeah. like, yeah, okay, I think I need to do that. And I was like, yeah, tell them it doesn't work and go put on a new one. And you're yeah. like, yeah, this medication is not helping me sleep. I was like, okay, then you need to tell them the medication yeah. is not helping you sleep. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to say that in my appointment, which I've got coming up in a few days. Again, tough love there. I've got it. I've got the audio recorded proof now so that's happened. <laughs> yeah every time you do that i'm gonna send you this pod yeah pod four yeah <laughs> yeah 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 i also think it's again like i i was serving pretty much every week at my church as well i've stopped serving in a lot of physical ways but i do a lot more of the media and the social media which and that's your bread and butter for me that, that yeah. is my bread and butter and that is again what i teach what i work with learners doing anyway so for me it's just an extension of my work but there's not as much pressure on me. And I've said that to them. I've said, you know, look, sometimes I won't be able to do the things. And because of the community it is, they don't want people stretching themselves too thin that they, A, can't enjoy what's going on, B, focus, and C, live a life where you can be in community regularly. So that's obviously been a massive, massive part of my recovery as well. I also think aiming high as well with my recovery and being able to speak out about things now with a fresh perspective in order to advocate and support others has been a massive, massive part of my recovery. And also relapses are a part of recovery, which I'm learning. You know, it, it can be swings and roundabouts. It can be, you know, you can be down in the dumps one day and you can be, you know, high as a kite on the other day, feeling really, you know, enthusiastic about your recovery I've also started to have just more evenings in to myself as well just putting on unfortunately trailer park boys that's my, <laughs> a I lot know. of my best mates love trailer park I boys know, they'll, yeah. they'll love that <laughs> but you know putting on something just switch your brain off but, yeah but I think for me it's being able to learn to laugh again and being able to learn to laugh and have fun and realize that I can do that and I can do that you know, with friends, with people in my community, at work, or just by myself. It's okay to have a laugh. It's not okay to be stuck in that place forever. The other piece that I want to talk about before we reflect is you are now on BBC News. Da, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> you did a very nice piece on BBC News, which I helped put together and set up for you, which was about your autism, which we haven't even discussed on this no. podcast yet. So... Just tell me about that, how it made you feel, you know, what it was like doing it and how it's kind of formed, I guess, a part of your recovery and self-confidence. So cheekily, you're not meant to be checking your phones in lessons, but I checked checked my phone. It was just on a little break. You know, if any of my colleagues listening was on the break, definitely. (laughs) And I checked it and I just got a message from you saying, oh, I put you forward for this. And I was like... (laughs) Okay. It was like, right, a journalist is going to be contacting you in an hour. (laughs) So I ran to my manager and was like, look, I need to take this. I'm doing this. Find some cover. So I ran downstairs and I think it took about two days worth of planning and working out how I could fit this in with my work because I wanted to, again, talk about what it was like being an autistic teacher and a mentor and an educator 
and someone with autism who has a full-time job and is... And quote, show that, show that visibility, unquote, yeah. Yeah, quote-unquote thriving mm. within it. So I got a few of my students involved. How did they feel doing it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did they take some convincing? Or were they like, yeah, let's do it, I'll be on BBC News. They were drama <laughs> students, so they hit up Oh, the yeah, they're great. <laughs> yeah. You're probably filming them out, like, oh, okay, I was, not everyone no, can do it. <laughs> I, I was. I had a lot of students come to me, but within that, you know, I had to write them a work experience reference and do all that. Was that nice for you to give them that it as was, well? Yeah. It was. It was nice to give them that opportunity. And again, I was also working at the same time, so I left the learners with the journalists and some support staff to do the piece whilst I was then working, doing headshots with another group of learners. So I almost gave them their chance, which was nice. They obviously, a lot of my learners who I work with know that I have autism and know that I have mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. Again, it's how much do you disclose without, yes. you know, breaking down those Appropriate boundaries. level, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think they, some of the learners I work with do have autism some don't the piece wasn't so much about that it was about me which I was like oh oh no what do I actually say <laughs> and I mean I've had enough experience of it on different podcasts and things and you know doing a lot of creative consulting work like you know doing some conferences and working within education for me it was an opportunity for me to actually talk about what support is within the workplace for people who are neurodiverse and how in order to accurately represent you need to get learners on board as well and learners actually recognizing and seeing themselves as those role models after the piece was done i received some amazing amazing feedback not only from colleagues but journalists got in contact with me and was like oh yeah it's really really great i then got a realisation from one of my learners who now calls me Mrs Autism. We changed it from Mrs Asperger's and I was like, no, we don't use that word anymore. And now he calls me Miss Autism. But my relationship with my learners has grown tenfold since showing them that video. I think it was important for me to be open and honest about being let down from different career paths, being let down from jobs because of, you know, my neurodiversity and the way I process things. If only 29% of people within, you know, the UK who have autism have any kind of work, not even full-time, the system is broken. If you give people the opportunity to learn, to discover their talents, to thrive, they will reap the benefits, not only for themselves, but for other people. Of course, not everyone with autism can work or can hold down a full-time position doing the job which I do. Not bigging myself up on that part, but I've learned to feel proud of what I have achieved and what knowledge I can share to other people. Again, TikTok is one of those things which it was posted on TikTok and there's been some horrible comments, but you just learn to ignore them mm -hmm. because, again, swings and roundabouts. If you focus entirely on the negatives, you miss all the positives, you know. The grass is always greener on the other side, but you've still got green where you are. Let's reflect now, pal. What have you learned about yourself during this period? that I am only as strong as my weakest days. I know that sounds a little bit of a oxymoron, but sometimes when you're in a weak place, you realise your strength to get through it. And that, for me, is one of the big reasons why I still do what I do. 
why I still challenge stigmas, why I get up out of bed every morning, even if I'm a bit creaky due to the FND. I, again, when you're faced with two roads to go down, you can either go down the road of recovery, which will be swings and roundabouts, or you can go down the road of a relapse, which turns into no longer being present, which then leads into no longer being alive. I had to shift my way of thinking to actually realise that I am doing okay. And you're more than okay, pal. Des- despite what the negative things have happened, there's always going to be things which will happen. And in my head, I see the things I've gone through. I've always tried to find a positive. You know, there's always silver lining. There's always something there which you can take away from it, whether or not you think it or if you feel it at the time. For me, one of the biggest learning curves has been accepting that other people can help and actually freely accepting that help, whatever shape or form that help might be in. I think reflection is one of those things which again it's a it's a lifelong process and there will always be things to reconsider there'll always be moments where you can control certain things and moments which are sometimes completely out of your control in whatever you know situation you go through it's about realizing that what you can control does not define you you and does not define your relationship with your previous self you can get 1% better each day, I tell myself all the time. You can also get 5% worse. But as long as you keep going, sounds cliche, so, mm. so cliche. And you know all these positive affirmations you get? <laughs> sounds so cliche. But you can control what you can control and people have your back. People won't have your back if you don't let them know what you can't control and give them some control as well to support you I asked you this on part two are you proud of yourself I'm proud of what I'm becoming I'm gonna say I'm proud of what I'm becoming yeah I'm proud of what I'm becoming and as a final question mate if you could go back Seems like a very long time ago now, but it doesn't. It's not actually that long ago, to be honest. <laughs> a very short period of time to when you were sitting in that hospital bed, surrounded by very elderly people who were very ill and probably in a much worse position than you were. Not to compare it, but for the listeners to give them yeah. a sense of where you were in what ward you were in, you were hearing those voices. You didn't want to eat. Your left side was immobile, and you were in a very very difficult period what would you say to that Claudia knowing what you do now and sitting here today speak out against the injustices which you have been faced in the past make sure people are aware of what you've gone through and also shout if you need to shout for help Mm. not just a whisper So in short, find your voice. Find your voice. Claudia, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you back on. 
thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking Podcast for your part three, pal. Thank you very much. It has been a pleasure. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In Pod. A big thank you to Claudia for coming back on the podcast, sharing part three of her mental health journey, and for checking in with me. As always, thank you to all the venters who've tuned into this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Give us a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts and help us out with those algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can visit our GoFundMe to make one-off donation. Or you can buy a Vent t-shirt. Or you can buy a ticket to the Just Checking In Podcast live show. That is on Friday, September 29th at the Eton Manor Rugby Club. All of those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.